Hey everybody, welcome back to an all new X's for Show segment. I'm TK and you can find me all over the socials at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Nico and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we are here to talk about this week's comics. We wanted to start uh, doing it early, getting our books read and getting our feelings out there. Uh, normally we're going to do this segment on Wednesdays, we think, but... This week, just because we got life stuff, it worked out that it was going to be on Friday. And I'm actually a little bit excited now to discover that it is because uh, in the midst of planning all this, we got some very cool new announcements. We got the next set of X-Books. Yeah, uh, that was uh, definitely trying to read really quickly uh, before we hopped on real fast. Uh, and so the first thing I want to do is bring in my partner, uh, Jake. And then I want to take a second to just talk about what we've had so far. We'll talk about some books, and I think we're going to get one more announcement uh, while, we're, while we're chatting. So maybe we can end up with that last one. Awesome. Hello, everybody. Hey there. I'm... Who are you, and where can we find you? Who am I? I'm a stranger in this place. No, I'm, uh, I'm Jake, uh, but for today, I'm Jake Weaver. Weaver of Jake's. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at... Oh, Mega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. Um, yeah, and we'll just leave it. You can see my Instagram. I don't have to re-say it. And so, right off the bat, I just want to pull us into... We got Alpha Flight. We got Alpha Flight. <laughs> That's so exciting. We got an Ed Brisson Alpha Flight book. Uh, Nico, do you have the artist on that? I don't, unfortunately. I'm sorry. That's totally okay. Um, you know, I right now I'm just kind of looking at it and reacting to the fact that we're seeing this original Alpha Flight team with Puck and Snowbird. Uh, I, I'm i already, right off the bat, really stoked about this. I can see in the background, mm -hmm. I see that Fang necklace, and I'm sort of wondering where we're going from there. Oh, yeah, they're definitely doing a second Genesis uh, reference to the team pop the, the team popping out of the page with the old team in the background. You've got, yeah, Fang, it looks like North Star and Aurora. And I, I don't know uh, enough Alpha Flight to know who that person all the way on the left might be. But it looks like a symbiote. But uh, it's Nemesis. Who's Nemesis? Uh, it's yeah. a major Alpha Flight character from uh, like the last 50 issues or so of the title. Okay, cool. Well this is very exciting. Uh, I will be interested to see how exactly it falls into the uh, Fall of X era. But I, I love Ned Brisson book, so right off the bat, I'm super stoked for that. And then, of course, we have uh, Children of the Vault, uh, written by Denise Camp, who I have not uh, seen any of their other work, but I'm very excited to find out what they've got for Cable and Bishop. I'm very excited about a Cable book. And, you know, I think we all uh, have been fascinated by Children of the Vault since they were first introduced. And to see that the press conference says that they're going to be referencing back to the, uh, like, Mike Carey era and Hickman era and Jerry Duggan era, it's super significant that they're trying to build on something. Uh, and to know that it's only four issues definitely helps gauge my nerves yeah and uh you know the alpha flight book is only five issues i think we're going to be seeing a lot of minis in this fall of x era and i'm very much okay with that 
Yeah, I was. This was one of the storylines that I was really interested to see resolved from the their reintroduction their reintroduction in the Hickman era. So I'm I'm excited to see some some solid screen time and not just sort of like meshed into or nestled into a, a larger arc. Um, yeah, that's it's exciting. I, I love these characters. And I just you know I'll be really interested to see because we've got characters like sink and laura who had such insane interactions with the children of the vault in the hickman era and in the duggan era how that's going to play into a book that focuses on characters like bishop and cable well and as well too you know they so much of the krakoan era has been shaped by this this three-pronged trajectory of mutants and uh ai and now post-humans and children of the vault really represent that that post-human turn um in a in a radical way um and so seeing these three factions kind of coming to coming to a head at in conflict with each other i think will be really i mean i i get why this is the fall of x era all of these these storylines that we've been getting for the last few years are really beginning to come together and and uh resolve i think it seems like well now that we kind of talked about what we know is coming, let's talk a little bit about what we got today. Uh, and right off the bat, the first title I really want to look at is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy number one. Um, extremely exciting to have a new Guardians of the Galaxy book in conjunction with the new movie that's coming out. Uh, we've got writers Colin Kelly and Jackson Lanzig, uh, art by Kev Walker, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit, with this cover by Marco Cicchetto. Uh I am not typically a Guardians guy, but I don't know. I kind of got into this book. Yeah, the, the spaghetti western of it all was a lot of fun. The kind of like the grim the grim overlay that let you know that this is this you know from the beginning this is not a story about a win like there there's no winning there's just taking the taking the hope that you can and getting the hell out of there um you know this this turn with you know what they're fighting and how they're fighting it it's really i'm i'm so curious to see to, you know to, to see the background and how they got to this point um and and where it ends up Without giving anyway, giving too much of it away because there's some big spoilers in this book. Well, I mean, one of the things though is we definitely talk about anything in the book that we're talking about. So if there's anything from the book you want to talk about, I'm going to spoil anything that's in <laughs> yeah, <laughs> agreed because it's you discussing know, the book. So fair, if you fair. feel if free to talk about if you're watching you'd like. this and you haven't uh, read them yet, you know, maybe watch it, uh, watch the recorded version when after you've sat down and read books. Well, with that being said, whatever's going on with Groot is crazy, and I'm I'm scared and sad because Groot was one of my favorite. It's certainly my favorite, like glue of the Guardians family in the MCU version of them. But it's also just like a fun and a fun like a fun comedic character in a lot of the the Guardians content of the last few years, with some real turns towards depth as well. And this just seems like a really a sad turn for for Groot. If it's Groot and not Groot's people, I don't know. It's it's there's so much mystery around what's going on. I just I do love an in media res like drop in, but I'm also left with all the questions that I think they want us to be left with. And right off the bat, one thing I'm curious about for both of you is how did you feel about the fact that they did lean so hard into the spaghetti western? Uh, theme of the whole thing. 
I don't know that it's a theme. I think it's a skin. I think yeah. what they did was they just took the movie and they just skinned it. And that's not necessarily to even say a bad thing, but one of the things we've been talking about on this show a lot is boutique runs. Boutique runs do a lot to help service a, a character that's maybe in a place that's really hard for the company to move them forward, right? So you find these characters like Daredevil. When anybody feels about Shadowland can be whatever they feel, but it like ultimately was literally Daredevil putting cops in cages in the sewer and telling them to shit and piss themselves. And like, that's just, it's really a little too dark for Daredevil. That's a very Punisher thing. That's a very, uh, you know, kind of grimdark Ghost rider moment. That's not Daredevil. And so that Shadowland pushed it there and the sales figure response and the critical response was even if this has merit as a story, it doesn't have merit as a daredevil story. They needed some way to bring him back. So they did a boutique run in the form of Mark Wade's Daredevil and the boutique nature of that, of runs like Brubaker and, uh, Matt Fraction's Iron Fist, you know, it's this idea that if you, attractively redress a character you can get past whatever the version was that just happened that you can't do anything with and the version of the guardians that just happened while wonderful celebrated really beloved would have been impossible to engineer a facsimile of in the films mm -hmm. so instead we're doing something that even though it is wiping away in so many ways the really cool thing we just had it's putting such a different taste in your mouth that you don't mind. I definitely see that. Um, I think, I think I'm not sure. I, I, I really enjoyed it, but like, I almost, I do mind in some ways. I'm wondering like, is this just a first issue thing where they're like, we, you know, we wound up on this desert planet and it just kind of, we had a Western episode rather than it's going to feel like this throughout the book. Or is it very much going to have this vibe throughout? That's one of my big questions right now. Yeah, and it, I guess it also speaks to the level of tolerability that as readers we can have for the very clear, like, you know, this seems like it's, it's set up to get us in mind and prepared for the movie. You know, we've got the movie characters. They're doing, you know, doing and saying movie character things even while it's happening in the, the comics universe. Um, you know, do I care that it's taken such a hard turn? I guess I care less if it's a good story. Um, I care. I, I'm. I, I feel less cynicism about the the corporatization of it if it's at least telling me something that feels, you know, resonant with you know an emotional experience that I'm I'm interested in. I I, I do like these characters ultimately, and I do um, I I do kind of like the aesthetic that's being introduced in this this issue, and, and I'm curious about whether or not it'll hold. If it is, yeah, if it is going to be a, a a kind of space western, or if it's gonna if this is just like a one off for uh, the purposes of this introduction, um, you know, mysterious strangers come to town and save everyone. It's a very, it's tropey, but it, it works as a, as a start of a story. Um, you know, you get these moments where like Nebula, I noticed throughout is kind of talking a little Western-y. And to me, I had a little bit breaks character, breaks the fourth wall almost. And that it feels like, you know, uh, we're dipping so hard into the skin. Um, you know, we do the same thing with Mantis being like kind of this honky tonk showgirl. Uh, but then she's also switching personalities, which I find very interesting. But, uh, you know, finding her in the pub doing the honky tonk show was a little bit like, wow, we're we're really going for it all the way. 
I think this also perhaps shows uh, an uncertainty with what Marvel thinks is going to happen with Guardians of the Galaxy 3. When they're sure the film is going to be a hit, they do everything they can so that when you pick up the book, it's identical. But I don't think that there's been any marketing of Guardians of the Galaxy that makes me think it's going to be a few Infinity Gems more. And so that all of a sudden, the comic, and they're leaning into this visualization, you know, like this is a change I think they're uncertain that James Gunn's final foray into the Guardians verse is going to be the rousing success that the first two were. And by having something that, frankly, because I'm excited for the possibility of boutique runs, but you can cancel this and it would be fine. This could wind up six issues and it would be fine. This could wind up 48 issues and it would be fine. But whether they want to pivot to that popular run that's currently going or have the ability to wipe this clean and go to the movie. This really reads to me like a corporate bet hedging yeah. in a way that uh, not that, you know, like I, I'm a big fan of these boutique runs, but it does not feel like Marvel is all in on this. It feels like they're all in on the cover. Mm. I definitely see that. And, you know, we get a lot of like, everybody gets a moment of character introduction. You get a lot of cinematic scenes like this one where you see everybody in, uh, you know, Tableau. Um, you get like little moments of tension between characters. Uh, you know, you have this moment where Gamora, like throughout the book is drinking a lot. Um, and so you really, they set up a lot in one issue, but it does feel like there isn't hard commitment to a lot of it. It really is kind of in media res storytelling, uh, one little bit at a time. And we'll see if we pick up on any of it. And I think the tragedy is using Groot in this way is just... It's just salacious, you know, it's, I had an anxiety attack. I, former contributor to the show, Kyle, uh, I took a screenshot of a Hello Magazine headline that was Padma Lakshmi's ex-husband finally revealed. And I was like, if you've ever heard of must-see TV, you know that she was married to Solomon Rushdie, you know, writer of the Satanic Verses. This is not like, this isn't finding out everybody that patty boyd dated this is like a pretty key moment in time space and if you're someone who cares about solomon rushdie or padma lakshmi you already know that and there is no amount of click baiting me that's gonna make me care and that is my vibe on group fall you know, I think I agree. Um, I was really taken aback by the art in a good way. Yeah, the art's um, incredible. It's really the art throughout is really gorgeous, but this specifically this panel of uh, you know of whatever Grootfall is uh, really stirred me in a good way. But I, I find that uh, description salacious really interesting and not incorrect. Um, I think you know Marvel has been really into kind of torturing its protagonists a little bit lately. Uh, there's definitely some of that coming up in Captain Marvel. Um, but I sort of, I get that it feels like impact. I just, you know, like everything else that we're talking about, I really look to the future and what this is going to mean going forward. 
It raises a lot of questions for me um, as far as, you know, is this is this Groot the Groot that we know? Is right. this um, is this Groot's species? Was this always kind of a function of the Groot that we just didn't know about? That they were these kinds of like, I'm guessing like Genesis planet re, re lifers where they would wipe everything out that's already there and replace it with Groot? Um, like in a kind of Borgy kind of way? um bio well like as a tree borg um I, you know i i don't mind the the storytelling turn the narrative turn um because i like a big i like a i like a big swing and this feels like a big swing um but make sure to get me there in the story make sure to make i, I want to feel the stakes i you know i get the sense that you know the thing that lives under gamora's drinking is is uh grief at losing this friend um yeah. And, and maybe guilt, you know, that group fall is happening, you know, that somehow it was a failure of the Guardians. Um, and if that's the case, and that that is what they're they're telling us, then good storytelling already, because, you know, I'm getting hints of that, and I want to see that fleshed out. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, the, I, I completely agree with the assessment that this is a story that, you know, it could be six issues, it could be 48 issues, it'll be fine. Um, it's cancelable, um, but, you know, in a in a in a way that they don't have to do it you know if, if the movie is successful and people really glom onto this story they can just keep it going on and this is the next chapter of guardians of the galaxy um but it's so early in in the run of this story it's almost it's hard to like make these kinds of predictions at this point is this one both of you want to keep picking up probably for the mystery i want to know what happened to group um kind of because it's my job like there's so books that I no. don't even no because there's books I won't even read for my job. Yeah, there's like books that I, I'm just like all out Avengers. I'm looking at you. I'm I'm just like hard pass. Um, but I also feel like there is a thing, and maybe I misread, but I thought the last page said something about Mysterium. And yes, it did. It's a fistful so of Mysterium, which you know it, is a west another Western reference, which is mm -hmm. one of the things that leads me to believe this is continuing. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, Mysterium itself is one of the, there are these pillars of the Krakoan age where they were like, come enter and be surrounded by these beautiful pillars. And then they realized these pillars are covers, not interiors. And they quickly tried to find ways around it. Like whether it's the kitty mystery box that's introduced in Marauders Annual, which pays off in a way that makes me kind of... I, you know, it's one of those things where if your mystery is better than your solution, you actually don't have third act problems. You have first act problems. Yeah. Right. If uh, one of my friends and uh, he's never going to write, so it's fine. I can, I can totally sell him out. Uh, he has one of the best stories I've ever heard. Oh my God. And when he tells you chapters one through 18, they're amazing. And then he gets to chapter 19 and you're like, you don't know how to end this, do you? And he's like, no, not at all. And so it immediately ruins the quality of the story. Um, Mysterium is one of those things that the Krakoan age sort of like trotted out like, oh, look, now we're into new metals, huh? You thought we were all adamantium. No, no. And so we've got this new metal and it's Mysterium. And I think that's great. Uh, big science, smart, smart boy. Good. But the actual payoff is what does Mysterium do? Why do we care? What stake does it play? Telling me something is special 
isn't the same thing as making it special because I can call myself a purple seahorse, but that doesn't make me a purple seahorse unless there's a reason to believe it. I hear what you're saying. You know, they, when they first kind of brought it into the bigger Marvel conversation, it seemed like it was, and, and it seems like to some degree, it still is now kind of the standard intergalactic currency after the like series of, wars that were happening in the lead up to uh Araco being established not those that those were related but there were wars happening sleaze war and all that um and the intergalactic economy collapsed and this was one of the things that Araco was trying to introduce to both put themselves on the intergalactic stage and try and do something to help the community um but where has it shown up you know you might see it in the casino that Cordyceps Jones is running um they use it to encase Vulcan uh, because you know that's a that's a good that's a good use for for Mysterium, I guess. But beyond that, it doesn't seem like it seems like a, an economic problem, which is not really the most exciting comic book problem. Um, how do you make that interesting? How do you make that exciting? I don't know. I was interested and excited when we were in the the uh, council chambers on Araco talking about the potential for Mysterium, but it yeah, it's kind of it's fizzled a little bit. And I want it to be more than just the standard intergalactic currency. That That's flat on the page for me. On the one hand, I absolutely agree. On the other, one of the things I noticed in a few books this week uh, is that we are starting to really settle into that sense of like the mutants are back to being really present in the Marvel Universe and having ripple effects throughout, which is something that we had lost for a really long time during the Decimation era. We got back uh, in really introductory ways when Krakoa started, and then it kind of felt like I was looking for it a lot and not really seeing it, but like, you know, Fistful of Mysterium being one example and the current X-Men book and how it ties into Captain Marvel being another really good example. Uh, we've got X-Men 21 written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli, color art by Federico Blee, Federico Blee, excuse me, uh, VCs Clayton Cowles on letters, and of course Tom Muller and Jay Bowen on design. Uh, that this is running concurrent with and interweaving with Captain Marvel to me is really fascinating and exciting. Um, how are you guys feeling about this run overall? And are you reading, you know, the the interweaving story between the two or just X Men? Um, I'm I'm reading both this and Captain Marvel. Um, this I'm a little more interested in, particularly because of the the ideological schism that happens at the end of this story um, between Scott and Jean of all of all people. Um, but I I like that this is a story that's happening in two forks, and both of them involve a lot of X Men characters. Um, I also I mean. I, I started reading the Captain Marvel side of things because because it ties in, but I was extremely, extremely satisfied with every word coming out of Rogue's mouth throughout. I think this was some of the best contemporary Rogue characterization we've ever gotten in this Captain Marvel story. So I've been actually, I've been, I've been enjoying both for different reasons, um, but I love a good brood story. 
And, you know, I really am a big brood fan. Uh, I love brood stories. I love uh, baby brew. I uh, think that one of the things that makes the brood a really interesting story is the way they interact with the X-Men at large is they're about the monster hidden inside you, not about the actual monster you're facing, right? So the X-Men are constantly up against villains who represent their they're equal in some way they're you know ideological counterpart but the only way in which the brood are an ideological counterpart to the x-men is that they're like you know we're of this species we're of this group that are just trying to survive that are different and have different abilities and are hated and feared well you know the brood are like rust they don't really do a whole lot of good for the things they infect but you know mutants have a whole lot more to offer I think having Brew as a touch point really represents something that I think a lot of books are doing a lot more with the X-Men. Now, Brew goes back to the days of Astonishing X-Men by Greg Pak, but uh, and then, of course, winding up in the pages of Jason Aaron and Nick Bradshaw's uh, Wolverine and the X-Men. I literally just looked up at my Nick Bradshaw Wolverine and the X-Men uh, hanging on my wall. Um, and the thing that always gets me about Brew is right now brew represents the human touch point of the brood who are a bad guy madeline Pryor represents the human touch point of limbo which are demons they're bad guys there is sort of no end to the effort marvel is going to to humanize the bad guys at all times which i think is the right engagement for the storytelling but i do worry that the amount of it that exists between that and the I like, I'm not negative on it at all. I love all of these new characters, but I'm done with old mans and old womans. Yeah. I am done with characters who are phenomenal in every way, but because they represent an underserved minority, they are being defined by that underserved minority such that when the book changes in any way, I know they're going to be gone. They're not being given the opportunity to like weave into the universe. They're being told by editorial, you know, put this character front and center. And then when the next writer comes in, they're going to have their character to put front and center. And like, there is this idea that if we just keep adding new versions of things, it's going to work out. But I just need Marvel to like slow down a little bit and invest a little bit more in sync before you make me care about sync and old woman, Laura. I want to invest in each one of these amazing trans kids that are being introduced like issue after issue in New Mutants. But I feel like there have been so many new characters in New Mutants in the last six months, I literally cannot name them. Yeah. And that is a little bit my concern with this run. You know, Brew represents the best of it, but despite thinking Laura is the best character and old woman Laura is terrific, she sort of does represent the worst of it. One too many doppel clones in a book where you're already complaining laura not you but you know the general right. public is already complaining laura is a doppel clone brew is just a beast replacement to so many people i need to see marvel really invest in these characters because every one of them is so spectacular they deserve a little bit more than what is this part six of seven of an ongoing uh, it's just even hard to even explain what this does yeah I absolutely see that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the way you talk about um, 
the the humanizing of villains is kind of the opposite of what you're talking about uh, with Grootfall, which is kind of the unnecessary villainization of good characters in this way that is like, isn't it insane? But does it really get us anything? Um, I think, you know, this, that'll be an interesting thing in Guardians to see, like, can they turn Grootfall into something that interests me? Or is it just, as you said, salacious? And I think that the brood and this actual, this arc in general, kind of represented another, a few too many things running concurrent. Yeah. I don't believe Jerry Duggan's X-Men book is a very good X-Men book. I think Jerry Duggan's X-Men book is an incredible X-Men line mm -hmm. that should be weekly. And it should be like X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold, X-Men Red, and X-Men Silver. I don't care. But he's trying to do so many things that... I get to these issues like this and the brew stuff doesn't actually feel well earned because I feel like the last time anybody really brought up brew was in empire. And so this feels unearned when there's so many storylines in Jerry Duggan's X-Men that I do care about. And it's not that this doesn't work for me, but I keep being told everything's about to change. I keep being told fall of X. Everybody's about to die or go Canadian and get written by Ed Brisson again. And I'm great. I'm I'm here for that. Sure, change everything. Fall of X me, but you can't f keep telling me the next thing is going to be great because I am starting to realize that you haven't actually closed out a single idea, and so now I don't know that anyone in the current X office is ready to execute the end of a story. And not to soapbox for a minute, but Jane Espenson, like one of the most successful female television writers of all time, once bemoaned the death of the spec script. She used to say that it's so great that everybody's starting to get jobs based on pilots, but every time you get a job based on a pilot, all you've proven is you know how to write a great episode structure. You don't prove that you know how to write somebody else's character in voice. And I'm starting to feel like maybe the writers of the current X books aren't being held to closing anything out because the goal is to keep this era forever. So nothing's finishing. I'm just getting part three of question mark. The best thing about Chris Claremont runs was every 50 issues. He said, you can start over. I'm not getting that here. My mind is blown. That's why I'm, I'm being quiet on it. And it's funny because, you know, I, the, the panel that I have up right now really kind of, is one of the things that does exactly i thought it was really I, I think it's a really beautiful moment you know jake and i were just talking about uh people being x-men being right mutants being right and that as an idea and the fact that we've got brew here saying is cyclops right is very interesting to me and i i uh broadly would love to get into it in x-men books but it does two things one it kind of minimizes brew and makes this now about is cyclops right and you know Brew's whole experience as a mutant brood kind of gets minimized, but also it does do that thing that you're talking about of like, well, now we have an open-ended question and we haven't really solved anything. And I think we're having that same issue with Gene and Nightmare. But isn't that, um, isn't that the, uh, that's how morality works. There aren't a lot of hard, hard answers to should the brood be genocided because of who the brood are i mean i i don't agree with cyclops ultimately like i think i think i take i take more with gene on this and i i thought that the 
the turn that Cyclops took felt a little unearned to me. His sudden rage at the brood that didn't really exist in the same way before. And then you hear Bobby, you know, saying he hates and fears the brood. Like, I just like this, this really interesting insert language that made it seem like they were propping up an ideological argument that the characters didn't really believe in. Because um, I don't think that Scott Summers is is going to be like, let's genocide a whole species. I don't fucking care. Freaking care. Free, 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 care. Um, I... I guess, I guess I see, and, and, and I guess what I do see is a writer trying to both sides an issue that doesn't really have both sides. Like, I don't think genocide is a, is an appropriate response to anything. Um, and I don't appreciate that one of my favorite, you know, characters is being made to be a proponent of it because his daddy got hurt. Um, that feels unearned to me. The other side of that is Gene's take is to me very well earned, um, born out of the, the lessons, the reflections, the lessons she's been picking up through this arc, the reflections she's been having um, as she's come up against Nightmare, come up against uh, the celestial god who judged her, thought about her role in committing genocide, the fact that she can never be forgiven for that, but she, you know, learns restraint and she learns, uh, she learns how to move forward with it. Um, all of that to me felt really... Um, felt really earned and her 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 exchange with brew calm as it was you know even though it felt like she was holding her anger down um i don't know i i this this run has definitely been a controversial a controversial x-men run i agree um but i i i think in the look back i've really liked what's been going on with uh with gene gray by and large so I have two hard pivots here, uh, and they're both actual direct responses as hard pivots. Yeah. And uh, I've already requested the art be generated. So uh, my own personal AI bot is on it right now. He's also very handsome. Um, but, you know, talking about how the brew moment felt like it became about brew of scott instead of brew yeah. it makes me think of something and uh, i don't want to surprise anybody on air but i technically legally my name is actually mr faggot because the balls pop out of my mouth and i love that joke way too much um <laughs> and uh i i have to make the gayest reference possible i used to say that when i watched gilmore girls i could tell who wrote the episode based oh my husband's the best uh uh, based on the tonality and treatment of Lorelai. If Lorelai was treated like a complex woman who's here to kick you in the face, the episode was written by Amy Sherman Palladino. <laughs> but when the episode focused on treating Lorelai as a deity, on hyper-idealizing her through Rory's eyes, it was almost always written by Daniel Palladino. Almost always. And... I think you see that a lot with Scott Summers through Jerry Duggan. He specifically, no matter what the story is, orients it around Scott the way that even any Daniel Palladino episode that wasn't meant to be about how Lorelai is great became about how Lorelai is great. Um, and the other thing it made me think of is, speaking of unearned and doesn't feel good, I feel kind of bad for my wonderful husband, who, if he would love to pop in he's more than welcome to join us on screen for a moment but uh so we're watching every bit of star trek possible hey handsome and uh hey, we just got to strange new world season one which what a what a raymond those slacks are a knockout and yeah 
It is quite literally one of the best seasons of any sci-fi show I've ever seen. It just pitch perfect mm. beginning to end in a way Discovery isn't. But Discovery, I love you. We'll get to it in a minute. So strange. It's just opera. It is what it is. The OC isn't the same as West Wing either. I was genuinely upset when I was like, oh, I guess we're doing the Gorn now. Okay, Kevo. Well, you're at the Gorn, and I guess it's time to be afraid because they're telling you, not that it's been set up, not and I I want to make a really shitty reference on air and scream something, but it would be spoilers and I'm going to leave it out. But every time a certain character appears on air, uh, Kevo and I heckle this character. Um, uh, we're, well, we're hecklers. That's what we do. That's what we do. We're Tyler hecklers. So... Um, we were, in fact, un- unprompted called the Gay Stetler and Waldorf in college. By our professors, yeah. Um, so, anyway, this is just such a great example of sci-fi. If you are a Star Trek fan, you might uh, you might catch a little bit of us talking about some stuff in the next couple of weeks. But, yeah, specifically the Gorn being an alien parallel, an alien and brood being, you know, the same mm, thing. Alien, alien. Yeah, alien, like the, you know... Um, Geiger. Aliens. Yeah. My favorite thing. So I cosplayed Ripley the other week. So um, anyway, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Uh, both of those things, Jake, you were very, very uh, current and made me think of things that <laughs> I thought of. Well, since we are, uh, you know, talking about this particular interwoven run, I do kind of want to pull into uh, the other half of it. Carol, that's Miss Marvel. We're talking about uh, issue number forty-eight, written by Kelly Thompson, with art by Sergio Davila, inks by Sean Parsons, colors by CC Dela Cruz, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Uh, I feel like the more exciting part of the story is happening in the X Men, but um, I'm really loving how the X Men are involved in this book as well. So I'm going to make a statement. Um, I was not reading this book. Yeah. Me neither. And then decided I needed to read this book. Hey, thanks, Unlimited. Um, I think if I have a specific um, a specific concern about the way this happens is it's kind of my same problem with Mysterium over in Guardians of the Galaxy. I am all here for interconnectivity of story and interconnectivity of idea like that's the hottest thing in the entire world you know there's nothing cooler than when uh so tori sheehan tori i miss you i wish you were here with us uh so when tori is reading daredevil with me and she'll be like is this really thor and i'll be like yeah she was like this 1970s is 1972 and randomly this guy just lands on the ground and goes you okay daredevil and he's like yeah i'm good thor and thor just jumps away is that really what comics were like in the 70s and i'm like absolutely and oh tori's not dead yes thank you uh, uh so kevo amazing he actually has to pay sting five thousand dollars i know isn't that insane how much money must he make a day on that right anyway so um i uh yeah tori's not dead so um very much alive like very awesome i worry so much that uh, Sting won't be in the third season of Only Murders in the Building, the finest TV show on air. But, um, and clearly I mean Sting the Wrestler. So I worry very much that something that is so cool and so good and so powerfully X-Men happening in a book that is not X-Men will invalidate it. Because fandom, if anything, 
is always fickle. There is no reason why, you know, thing X works and thing X doesn't work and thing Y. And don't get me wrong. There's always the Katy Perry, Sarah Bareilles connection. When Katy Perry, whoa, uh, when Sarah Bareilles released Brave, it wasn't a big hit. Roar. And then when Roar came out six months later, it bumped Brave back onto the charts to a higher position than it had originally achieved. People just wanted inspirational anthems, man. And it put them in the right mood. Right. I'm concerned that I actually do find the Captain Marvel part more interesting. I'm concerned that this is going to get invalidated because the brood isn't a Carol thing. It's a binary thing. Oh, Oh, I, 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 I mean, I, I get where the concern comes from, and I think that people who really think that are just wrong, like historically wrong, the brood is. Because they write the books. <laughs> so this is so the thing I love about this Captain Marvel arc is that it's it's such a it's such a it's it's hitting so many historical reference points for the brood. Um, you know, one of the first conflicts was the X Men and Carol Danvers. That's when she turned into binary. Um, was 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 when they first faced the brood. Um, the, the brood uh, empress that we're seeing is the same design as the brood empress that we got in the X-Men versus brood 90s miniseries. That, that two shot that was really weird and a continuation of the like the brood arc that happened when the X-Men were, were in the outback. Um, you know, Carol, you know, Carol has as much, I think, as much claim to brood stuff as Storm does, as, as Colossus does as Kitty does, as any of the X-Men who were there at the time, um, you know, more than certainly Gambit, more than Psylocke, not more than Rogue. Well, no, more than Rogue, even. Well, Rogue's had her own brood adventures, but I just, I, I just, I, 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 and given how, how, I know this has been lost in, in, in the, like, ensuing decades, but, you know, Carol Danvers was for a long time, like, uh, uh, a secret X-Men character. Like one of one of Chris Claremont's favorite gals to work with. Yeah. Um, she was in the X-Books. She was a feature character. She, you know, supported them. She helped them delete their information from the Pentagon database. Like she was really important in that whole oeuvre. And she left when Rogue joined the team, understandably. Um, and still kept popping back in Rogue's psyche every now and then. I guess to me. As someone who grew up reading those stories, I still, I'll forever see Carol as, you know, an X-Men cousin, you know, like a Care Bear cousin. Like, she's she's still part of that oeuvre for me. And so seeing her go on an adventure with this old enemy of hers and the X-Men, like the, the, the final battle, it feels like, it just, it feels right. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving the, the reference points that these writers are, are pointing to and, the resolve that they're giving us although I, I i'm very sad about binary i was gonna say how do you feel about how do you feel about this character binary this this energy being that has come out of carol that you know is unique and and simple and just wants to do good it's a bit of a why for me i think it had for me it has to do with the fact that Carol reached a point where, because I do get you saying she's a secret X-Man, but you are referencing stories that are 40 plus years old. And we've reached a point where, because I'm still with you on that, but no, she's a, she's a, she's a cop. She's a space cop. She's kind of like a brutal narc. She is absolutely full on A-Cab. She's just, you know, A-Cab in a fabulous suit. And 
the thing that binary represents is this beautiful reinterpretation of who carol could have been carol with the x-men was free it's kind of like you know the best green lantern stories paint the green lanterns as miserable space cops but the best stories about green lanterns paint them as complicated people who want to get away from oa and i feel like why well because carol's ruined in the popular perception at this point yeah so many of our country like, we've had like 40 contributors at this point we would get booze from people when she came up for a while because she's such a space cop and because of civil war two i'm with you she is forever you know a special person in my heart but like I think binary had to come back to remind us that there is a kinder Carol in Carol somewhere. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Um, and I, you know, uh, we got some preview pages from McKay's upcoming Avengers run where specifically Carol says like, we shouldn't be cops. And people were like, see, she doesn't want to be a cop. And unfortunately, and Nico, your point stands like you can't buy back that much time being a cop with one author's reference to it not happening like i, I like carol a lot because the carol uh, that i know is the one that we're referencing there's a there's a famous uh italian actor uh daniel um De, De Vito, and i believe what he said once was some cocks can't be unsucked <laughs> i love it i pulled because... up this moment to, oh sorry jake do you have something I was going to say, I just, I, I, if the goal here is to move Carol away from that characterization, like we've had, you know, X, you know, tens of years of it at this point, um, I'm fine with that. You know, if, if the goal is to, is to, you know, remove her from this, um, this very problematic system that she has become an upholder of, uh, and, and make her an independent agent, um, and less beholden to like, you know, uh, what am I doing? less beholden to like to, to the authorities that she serves right now. Fine. Um, yeah, I would love to see her be more binary than Captain Marvel, uh, than Captain anything. Um, but yeah, I, I, I also agree that she is burdened with this, you know, last few decades of being a real hard ass and not in a great way. And I wonder how much of that has to go back to Chris Claremont creating a version of her that was just rot. Yeah. I mean, the psyche version of her in Rogue, which is for many people, the predominant way they've read her. More people read Uncanny X-Men than read Carol and Avengers. So more people read a version of Carol that was diseased and rotting because it's the Jim Lee era. So that famous cover of that gross version of her attacking Rogue is like from the best-selling era of X-Men, which sold better than any era of Avengers. That version of Carol is probably one of the most recognizable visually to most fans, unfortunately. And when your version of her is literally decrepit and rotting, what are you going to do? You know, just as a slight, not not even a pushback, but just broaden the context a little bit. They did an episode in the animated series where Rogue confronted the psyche of Carol Danvers and made peace with her, you know, recognizing that she took her powers, recognizing that she took something significant from her and recognizing that this was a superhero who she'd hurt. It was a really... Uh, it was it was a surprisingly nuanced episode for what it was, and it was a good um, 
as 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 someone who didn't know really the origin story of Rogue before watching that episode, I was curious. I was more curious about who Carol Danvers was coming out of that. So you know, they did they definitely did her dirty um, in 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 a lot of her portrayals in the later like in the Jim Lee era X Men stuff. You know, seeing seeing Rogue fight get yeah, zombified Carol post Siege Perilous was really disturbing and upsetting. Um, but there have been other opportunities for us to get to know old school Captain Marvel. Um, they just haven't been, there have just been so few and far between. So I've, I've left us on this uh, particular couple panels for a while because I feel like this kind of represents some of the best of the issue in which, for one thing, gorgeous art and the color art is absolutely insane. The greens, the purples, the reds, the pinks. Um, but we also get a really gorgeous slice of a lot of different people from Conan to Polaris gambits in the mix. I think this is like the best place gambit can be surrounded by powerful women, just kind of running service tasks. Um, but Nico, I also wanted to point to you a little bit on this one, just because we've talked somewhat about, uh, Jessica spider woman, uh, in our, coverage of MC2 stuff and Spider-People stuff, and I just wondered a little bit what you think of her in this context really being the solid best friend to both Carol and Binary. I, honestly, I'm kind of resentful of this particular panel um, set. Yeah. Because it, this doesn't feel to me like it's anything current. It feels to me like it's... And if you like this, check out Uncanny X-Men Omnibus, Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, Volume 2, where sure. you can check out this team and many of their adventures. <laughs> I, at the risk of sounding like uh, a nouveau curmudgeon, um, or maybe an old young person, I don't know, but <laughs> I'm really done with existent modality and... You know, there's this quote from Mark Wade that I quote way too much because quoting it so much actually is the problem with the quote. Mark Wade once said, until Frank Miller, no one really knew what they were doing with Daredevil. And then since then, everyone has done Frank Miller to varying degrees of success, including Frank Miller. And he also made a comment really positive about the Carl Kiesel run, which should, of course, be treated really positively. The Carl Kiesel run in the 350s is just one of the best things in the entire universe, 10 points. But... um I bring it up because everybody's sort of been doing shades of Claremont since Claremont. Even in the ways in which people avoid doing Claremont, they actually have locked themselves into the binary. You know, there's this joke from Brooklyn Nine-Nine season five where uh, two people are competing for being the progressive candidate for commissioner of the police. And, you know, Captain Raymond Holt, our male lead, is like, I have an idea for like mobile precincts and making it possible to go anywhere. And the woman he's against goes, interesting. I have an idea to delete precincts altogether. <laughs> and I'm so excited to hear all of these people tell me how I have a cool new way to not do Claremont. No. Why is his name coming out of your mouth? I understand that he wrote 15 years of books that everybody's referenced, but now it's been longer than he was on the books. Like, it's been 30 years since he quit in a huff. He was only on for 15 years. <laughs> it's been twice as long since he quit. We can get out of the binary of Claremont or not. It kind of reminds me, um, I'm not going to remember who said this. It was a famous fantasy writer who said, you're either 
doing your work and you're, you're pointing to your Tolkien references or you don't realize that you're standing on a mountain of Tolkien beneath you. Um, and, you know, I think part of the reason we see so many people, whether they know it or not, consciously referencing Claremont is because, you know, Claremont gave us some of the first real, like, he, he wrote, literally wrote the book on what a good X-Men story consisted of at the time. Um, and that's, you know, that was the era that captured people's attention on the X-Men. Yeah. Um, the, the balance of soap opera drama with action, um, you know, even he hasn't been able to replicate it since. Um, but I think that when people take those uh, those frameworks, the idea of like, how do you balance your storytelling with your action, but do it in a distinct voice. Like I think Grant Morrison did a great job of taking that, that structure and making it their own. Um, I think Mike Carey did a great job of taking that structure and making it their own. I think that there are a lot of writers who you can't get away from Claremont past a certain point because of the amount of time that he spent creating this mythos and method of storytelling. Um, but you know, we get we get advancements of the form, we get developments of the form, we get people trying, uh, you know, trying new things and not always succeeding. And then you get, you know, love notes to that era, which this feels like. This feels this this particular arc, looking at these characters, looking at the way they're interacting, looking at these strong Claremont dames who are all over the book. This feels like a love note to 40 years ago. And that's why I ended on this last uh, set of panels, because I think it speaks to what both of you are saying. It is very uh, Claremontian and pulling in a lot of references. But I do think, you know, in that love note way and also in just a very cinematic like we got the big group shot again and they're all going for the action. I also really want to quickly kind of point to is it Hazmat? Is that her name? Yes. Matt and Rose. Hazmat is a goddess. Yeah. Well, I it's just it's I think it's the previous issue where they have they have a chat about being people who have difficult powers to contain. And I've said this before, I think, but Rogue's arc as a character over the last 40 years has always been really interesting to me, especially once Carrie got their hands on her and started to give her control of her powers. Um and you know really like lean her into this role as i've been through it i didn't have control i have control now and i'm a teacher you know the fact that there are young super powered people out there who have heard of rogue you know she's got this reputation that precedes her who turn to her and say like hey like you know you're just like a huge role model of mine like i really want and she didn't turn and say save it for the camera she said you know this is really awesome like of course like it's tough but like yeah you're gonna you're gonna do fine you're doing fine you're a hero um, Rogue, I, I love Rogue as an inspiration to young superpowered teens, not just mutants, but, you know, people who struggle with their abilities in general, because she is such a success story. And I love that that happened in a Captain Marvel book because of the, the troubling dynamic that the two of them have had for so many years. Um, this just seemed like a really great show for Rogue. No, I don't want to get bit on the foot by a small rodent that hates me. But uh, I'm, I think I'm calling bad karma to myself because I'm about to say Roke is basically Britney Spears. She's a little bit Southern, but I think enough people don't quite catch that. No matter what her looks are, they're always kind of fashionable. I could see Rogue wrapping herself in a snake. But the point I want to make <laughs> is when Rogue was first introduced, she was like kind of, and I, I feel so stupid making this comparison, but Rogue was athletic. 
And when you think about early Britney, literally in her first videos, she is in like, like a gym. She's in a high school gym. Like that was a decision they made because not every girl was in an athletic form. And then Chris Claremont left and he made some mistakes before that. But when Chris Claremont left, they just decided to replace Rogue with a slutty baby swamp rat. And she's just constantly rocking around being like, oh, hello, Gambit. Is my boob out? And Gambit is like, yes, your boob is out. That's awesome. And that is literally Rogue's personality for like a decade, right? And the thing that it, it makes me think about is the way Britney had her agency removed from her. And all of her music was just turned into like generic generic club slot music until she took control of her music again and her life and now she is an upstanding look at her and she got control of her powers and now she controls her own legal state and like i do think there's a lot to be said about how the way we feel about rogue we root for her we see her as a victor not a victim despite her victimizations and the way she inspired countless clones i think Rogue is kind of the Britney Spears of X-Men. I really see it. I love you got it. me there. It took me a second, but I, I definitely, I, I, I hear that comparison and I see it. I, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to think of what club, what, what uh, Rogue's like bad club music would sound like. I'm straining to touch me sugar one more time right now. So. Well, I'm going to cut in with a uh, a bit of news because we got the last announcement. We are talking about Uncanny Spider-Man, which is going to be written by Cy Spurrier with art by Lee Garbett, who uh, did work on Death of Doctor Strange. And uh, I guess like Iceman before him, Kurt's going to be striking out on his own and uh, is going to be bamping around New York City in... Uh, spider-man garb for some reason i'm not really like i'm reading the uh press release and there's just no real explanation for that but uh you know he is going to be dealing with his mother and dealing with spider-man's rogues gallery nico go the spark then kind of matches the spider-man so for those of you who haven't been keeping up, they determined that it's really a bad thing to say that you get superpowers from radiation because you mm -hmm. mostly just get cancer. Mm -hmm. So they've decided that uh, every power that has radiation has some other thing tied to it. It's not just radiation. It's radiation and. And um, <laughs> it's spider magic for Spider-Man. Yeah. And it's uh, it goes back to my absolute favorite Spider-Man run of all time, the J. Michael Straczynski run, where it's introduced that Spider-Man is part of the spider totema. Yes, the spider was irradiated, but it was a magic spider. He magic irradiated spider. Get into yeah, it. Yeah, it's like a magic spider. Otherwise, how would it have survived the radiation? How would it be able to transfer powers through radiation? No, it's like a thing. And being an irradiated spider actually makes Peter unique among Spider-Men. Because not every Spider-Man is irradiated, which we learn when um, there's creatures whose whole shtick is eating spider people. Yeah, sure. And one of them uh, goes to eat him and can't because he's filled with radiation. And the only thing they're weak to is radiation. Like, okay. I mean, that's 
that's that's something. I don't know why we had to stray so far from mutates with uh, with with unactivated powers whose powers got activated by different catalysts. But sure, magic spider totemic problematic word. Magic spider powers. Sure, sure. And um, so the spark is totally just the the web of life and destiny spider destiny. I noticed that he's wearing a bit of a nully costume. He's got he's got the red the red and the black yeah. and uh, um, Venom just got the same costume too. Yes, he did. I I heard. I'm 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 filling in my uh, my King in Black uh, mythos right now. Um, so so that stood out to me. I guess you know. I guess if the spider powers are a magic thing, it's not too far off base that that Kurt Wagner would be into it because he's like he's one of the characters who's really sidestepping into Marvel mutant magic stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah but the spider symbolism is really I, they're gonna have to really sizebury like, gets get into it i think i think we'll do it i mean i think we'll I mean, get he, there to bring us the spirit of variance yeah exactly so this is very that in terms of like let's cross over with another property in a weird magical way but somehow it makes sense and we all fall in love with it when i think exactly like dan slot i think sizebury <sighs> Now I was I was hang on one sec. I, I just want to pull up because I think this is the perfect pivot point to ah. get into get into the Spider-Verse. Mm. I was curious about why this fell under the Marvel Voices imprint. As was I. Marvel Voices is uh really starting to in some ways feel like Stormbreakers insofar as like it's about showcasing writers sometimes and less about showcasing identities. I don't know. It's a little confusing. Nico, I feel like you have an idea. Well, I mean, I actually think it has more to do with the reality of optics. Like, yeah. I would rather hear we are working to create a story that contains the multitudinous, multitudinous nature of spider people than um, this book is just gay. Because, like, um, this book is just gay does not mean one thing. It means a hundred things. And, like, this book is just black. Oh my God! I any friend of mine who is a person of color will tell you there is no one way to be that of color culture mm -hmm. anyway. And so sometimes when I hear Marvel voices, the gay book, I'm like, what makes it gay? Is Bruce Valanche gonna come and slap my ass with it? And like, I, I if no, 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 I just installed no. a wise lock. No one is breaking into my house and slapping. My ass. That was not something you wanted. That's not something you were suggesting. Right, right. Okay. No. But but if the uh if Simulu wants to come with every copy of the voices that had Shang-Chi in it, he's more than welcome. That's okay. That's getting through the lock. Yeah, that he can have the code. Okay. Uh your episode of Worth It was my favorite. Um so yeah, this really I don't know. I've read every page of everything called Spider-Verse, even the little kid flip books. Like, literally, the little kid wooden picture books called Spider-Verse. I've read them. Um, we watched multiple animated versions of it. Uh, we read every possible version of Into the Spider-Verse. And this felt like, I don't know why this was Spider-Verse. I don't know why this was Marvel Voices. There was nothing about this that felt like a celebration this felt like a checklist of what to get published. Each of the stories was great, but actually 
each of the writers did a beautiful job. The artists made beautiful art. But this is an example where each one of these stories would have been a whole lot more effective separately on Unlimited mm -hmm. than I feel I got for paying for this book. It felt like this was a almost like an incoming or like a timeless or like a, this is like a setup yeah. for these are the characters and their ongoing stories in the Marvel Spider-Verse coming up. So, you know, preview pay attention more than like we're trying to represent something. But I'll really be shocked if they're all going to actually get that treatment. Um, you know, I mean, and like Vita Ayala and uh, Alberto Albuquerque and Rachel Rosenberg, uh, Vita Ayala on writing alberto albuquerque on art and rachel rosenberg on color art for this first story with miles morales nico you said it perfectly it's a fantastic story but it does feel a little bit like a, a checklist story uh you know it gives us very basic miles structure of this is who he is this is who he fights uh this is what he worries about you know he's got family stuff family concerns and at the end of the day he gets back to his house and his mom totally gets that he is a spider person and life isn't easy that's fantastic it's really well written i love Vidayala. but um we are actually doing like there's a spider there's a spider verse infinity comic that is telling those exact stories as you said um where it feels like this might have really popped and you know i for this particular thing i'm fine because i feel like you know, miles really is getting his his flowers and everybody knows and loves miles but i think when we get to web weaver is when i think this is a you know this is a character that's tucked into a book and not being highlighted tucked you say <laughs> Oh, she's not tough. And this is, of course, by Steve Fox. Uh, this is Fire with Fire featuring Webb Weaver, uh, Cooper Cohen, uh, by Steve Fox, with art by Luciano Vecchio, and colors by Ruth Redmond. I think for a lot of people, this was one of the issues that we, uh, one of the stories we knew we would be talking about and having feelings about. And I had feelings. I don't know that I did. Okay. Um, I feel like the trap we're in with a lot of these characters right now is they're not getting a chance to grow because we lived in a in a period where like when miles i worked at a comic shop when miles morales came out good god that was a moment and like it was instant it was instant the reaction was wild but there weren't a thousand characters they were trying to push on 10 platforms so Miles Morales got the kind of treatment that made him Miles Morales. Spider-Gwen is actually like the last of them. And after that, everybody is just sort of getting this, oh, yes, that's the one of those. Yes, right. The several of them. Good to know. Yes. Oh, of course. And it just becomes hard to keep track. And Web Weaver is super cool. And I, I love this, you know, what we're doing. But I, I have... Um, I go back to this moment that took place on our show two years ago where a character was introduced that issue for the first time ever. And somebody was like, oh, and they're the best. You know what? We all love them. And everybody in the room was going crazy for this character. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I don't know why. They have two panels. I love their design, but that's two panels. And you're saying they always this and they always that. You're headcanoning. It's that classic hymn. Yeah. This is like the fifth appearance of Web Weaver, maybe the tenth appearance of Web Weaver, and oh, I, I want to. I think it's a lot fewer than that. I think this. Is I like do too, third. but I'm being really cool, yeah. and I I want to celebrate it. 
I want to celebrate yeah. Web Weaver. Yeah. But other than, oh, you're gay? Cool. What am I what am I celebrating? Because one of the things that this character is meant to be is a pastiche of Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be a copy and paste of Peter Parker. So I'm not getting a unique character. I'm getting but a unique take on it. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm here for it. I love gay. I love gay in short shorts. Daddy does love a nice booty. But I feel like this is not anybody's, not Steve Fox's failing, not Luciano Vecchio's failing, not even really the editorial's failing. It's the failing of an industry that clamors for 200 pages of this character and then financially supports 10. And you can't blame the artists for being unwilling to work for free. You can't blame the publishers for being unwilling to jeopardize the possibility of employment for their writers. So it kind of comes down to the people saying that they want these stories. They got to start paying for them or they need to be like, let's help change comics. Marvel subscription. You don't pay for any book. You just get them weekly, something. But these characters need more than they're getting because you can't sustain them like you used to. But everybody's looking for that classic sustenance. Well, and at the same time, we've we've gotten a lot further away from the era where they would introduce a queer character, hype them up in the media, and then shortly later murder them brutally. I'm looking at you, Freedom Ring. Um, I, I Gated like, F. <laughs> penetrate. Oh, anyway, um, <clears throat> I I don't know a lot about Web Weaver as a character beyond. There's what, not a lot to know beyond what he represents um and i like what he represents because and and tk you and i have talked about this a little bit but i think um i think femme gay representation is really low uh in comics especially this is a character who is especially representing that and this gives you know an entry point an access point you know visibility to a whole host of readers who may not see themselves in the comic experience and the superhero experience. I think the fact that, you know, they're they're showing us a superhero who is specifically coded as femme and gay and is very heroic and strong and capable. Um that's that to me is the the for for a book like this, you know, where we're just getting a short story, that visibility is the takeaway. That visibility is the point. Now, I sure would like to see more stories about this character because, you know, they interest me and I want to know what their life is like beyond what feels like this should have been a story in a Marvel Voices Pride anthology and not a Marvel Voices Spider. This, this, yeah. Sorry, Mike. They're at a Pride thing. He's at a Pride thing at Fire Island. Um, so, yeah, I want to I want to know what's going on with this character. I want to know. Oh, I love love that symbiote. Um uh, I wonder well, who this character is. This is a person. I wonder who this person is. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you kind of a question that that kind of launches out of that, and I mean it really positively. Um, I don't think Web Weaver reads that femme. I think he just reads like a trendy queer. I think when the language changes and gets a little bit masker, he's just gonna get more mask. And he just reads like a trendy white gay to me. He doesn't read like connecting to the femme experience, connecting to the queer person of color experience. And so in a lot of ways, while I'm really grateful for what he represents, of course they went with an attractive, thick, white, hot, gay boy. Of course they did, because Peter Parker can't be too many things that are off book. 
and this is still a Peter Parker, but of course his name is not Peter Parker. No, because Peter Parker could not be gay. Because Peter Parker could not pack a peck of peckers in his mouth. This is alliteration still, but it's a very different alliteration because Peter Parker is not gay and is not in love with Johnny Storm. That is correct. So, there is that vibe for sure. I just sort of wish that this, because it's again, it's not Steve Fox. Steve Fox is killing it, doing this. Like, even if you are the person taking what someone might call a half step, this is the furthest they're letting him jump. He's not doing something bad or wrong, right? It it really is about a corporate culture that needs to change to support these books. Because I, oh, I'm so sorry, by all means. I was going to say, there, there is kind of the, the Iceman issue of it all reflected in this. This is, you know, where Iceman holds that holds that position down in X-World. Um, it seems like Web Weaver is being propped up to similarly. Like, oh, look, look, we got one of these. Um, and that's not fair to readers and people who want to see this kind of representation be more fleshed out, be more nuanced. We, we want these characters to be characters and not just icons of an identity um you know we're so much more than the identity politics that we we bring to the table we're we're real people with real stories that's what i'd like to see happen with these characters who we point to and say like well i see myself represented in this character but you know what is their story give me that story and you know i want to give real credit to i gotta pull out my credits um to uh jeremy holtz the writer eric coda on art and eric arseniega on color art for uh an unraveling web this gorgeous second person story of cindy moon uh that i just was not expecting uh and we i was are so silk impressed boys by over here what's that we are silk boys over here. We are big time silk boys, and we're. I think really you can call us silk merchants. <laughs> we're really excited for the new silk series that's coming out. This was so beautifully wrought. I can't think of the. I don't think I've ever seen a second person comic. Um, what is this? Got, Bright lights, big city. Yeah, I mean, it's just very. I was, uh, you know, I'm so impressed with the perspective on it, and um, you know, I. I don't know what it really tells us about i mean it tells a really beautiful story about a person i don't know how it folds into her larger narrative but like it's a it's a beautiful moment to have with this character that i just like feel like deserves beautiful moments and the fact that she is okay i'm not to not to i'm so sorry jake but this is going to be one of those things so teak you're current on spider-man yeah oh my god that's the most they've revealed that the only person who can possibly replace Peter Parker in the entirety of the multiverse is the most important spider person ever is Cindy Moon. And that if Peter Parker were gone, Silk would have always been the Spider-Man. We would have always just had Silk if there was no Peter Parker. And, you know, they have alluded to how important she is in Spider-Verse stuff in Amazing. this way that is very like uh, it's important that they could have sex. 
and that's been gross and weird. So, it's kind of hot, though. <laughs> it's very hot. They're very hot she together. She was introduced to, like, she was locked in a room for forever, and then yeah. suddenly Peter was like, I'm all over you? Yeah, there's a weird thing there. It's it's complicated and not necessarily worth getting into, because I think what's happening is we're changing it, and, like, mm-hmm. respect to the author who came up with both things, because that the same author who's writing Spider-Man right now and changing this mythos was the one who has Cindy Moon and Spider-Man with this insane sexual tension that like is because she has a role in spider mythos stuff but it feels like that role is to have sex with peter and now after all these years of that really being all that was said about it it does feel like we are changing things wait are you saying the real victory is the peter that was inside her all along i hate you for that because it's so right um but yeah i mean you know i don't i don't quite know how this beautiful story folds into that but i love it i mean i just i love this so much it's very day in the life of turn off your cell phone cindy yeah and then we get to uh spider punk um written by it's got music for uplifting uplifting gormandizers written by jay holtham uh with art by ken lashley and color art by cc delacruz i should also mention that vc's travis lanham did the letters for all of these um Nico, I never know where we fell on this in all our spider person reading, but I, by the end of the whole thing, I was kind of a spider punk person. I feel like maybe you were not. Am I I'm correct about that? I find him very annoying. Yeah, uh, I get as it. A, as a guy who walked around with a guitar on his back for 20 years, like I legitimately, this is not the cover of Once on DVD starring me. This is irritating. I don't want to walk the line with you. I want to set you on a ring of fire. I... Um, I do want to say, though, that I am an enormous Ken Lashley fan. His this is art, gorgeous art. It's, mm-hmm. And he has done some beautiful work at Marvel over the years on like Excalibur. And it's just really great to see this incredible writer of color, uh, artist of color, um, get work in a, a couple of Pride anthologies in a row now. Um, you know, with uh, sorry, voices anthologies, not everything is gay. What an agenda. <laughs> um but yeah, I just think this is some of the best art in the whole book. The coloration, though, really takes the cake. And I know he didn't do the colors. Yeah. Um, really stunning work. I love the idea that in this universe, Man-Wolf is a band. It just makes me really wish that Spellbound was in this somehow. Oh, man. If only. Zizix, please. Yeah, I don't know these. I didn't know the characters and... You know, it was a cute story, but I think more than anything, the thing that stuck out for me was the the art on this was just phenomenal. Yeah. Love the Sinister Six piece. I mean, you know, come on. Um, I don't know. It just gave me... Spider-punk stories are always kind of exactly... You get exactly what you think you're going to get, and they never really blow your mind. But in a way that I'm kind of okay with, and I just ultimately really, really enjoy... Kind of um, like um, that's how I feel about Muse albums. I kind of know <laughs> yes. exactly what I'm going to get. It's not like a Papa Roach album where I kind of know exactly what I'm going to get. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, that's a good descriptor. And, you know, from that to one that I we were eagerly anticipating and just talking about, uh, you know, we had... Jason Lowe's written and drawn by Jason Lowe. Oh, uh, wasn't it? It was so good. Working it out. We got a we got Peter Park. 
Um, you know, Jason talked to, to us a little bit about this on Monday. And, you know, Jason, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. As you were pitching it, I was like, I, I don't think I I don't think I get it. And as soon as I read the first page, I was like, I get this and I want it all the time. Because the thing that Jason Lowe captures for me better than anybody working in like truly like not because he's super nice to me that's why we ask him on the show so he can be nice to me um (laughs) he catches the moments between breaths better than anybody like there's that second where and we all have it and like i have it standing at my bedroom window the most often where there's that that moment where like you've just taken in the breath you feel it coming out but you're just not sure what's going to happen next you're not sure where you are you all of your feelings are at the top of your chest with this breath And as it goes out, you can kind of pack the feelings back down for a minute and you just go about your day. And it's like Jason catches those breaths in every panel. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, artistically, he's an incredible character designer. This is a really cool outfit. Uh, Spider friend. It's, you know, uh, I, I think... If you hear it right off the bat, you might think like shrug, but it becomes one of those things like um, Pete Spiderman, the hottest spider character. I, I just said it time. so you could have the meltdown. Uh, where like you know, it, you 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 raise an eyebrow, but then you see it on the page, and you're like, again, I want so much more of this. I just really also like what he's doing with this meditation on the the focus of sitcom. You know how he's kind of like pointing at friends and being like, they did it wrong. (laughs) They put all the emphasis on these boring white people and put all the people of color in the background or as bit characters. You know, this is, this is a great spin because you get to see how, just how disconnected and ditzy they all look, you know, with the concerns that they have versus, you know, the real existential concerns that Peter Park has both about, his work as spider friend, his place in the lives of his friends, his, his capacity to step up and be independent and self-supporting. Like there's something so charming about this guy. Who's like, yeah, no, but like, I love them, but also I kind of hate them and they're not really great friends, but he still tries anyway. And I like, my hope would be in watching this character move forward that he'd, he'd grow enough to see how crappy these friends are and that he could do so much better with, another group of people or on his own well should he become part of the spider verse and start interacting with like a new version of the web warriors you know should he meet mayday god forbid i feel like he would really suddenly have this whole other group of friends and it would be such a cool uh you know fourth wall shattering because he lives in a sitcom universe Mm -hmm. and there's something about that that is so it's one of the things that it's it is why I like uh, spider punk because spider punk's universe is kind of in that way that you said about this Guardians of the Galaxy run spider punk's universe is so skinned it's skinned towards musical life in a world where everybody is constantly doing music stuff this one is skinned towards sitcom life and I love when those really specific spider verses mix with the kind of standard spider situation Mm -hmm. i like that a lot better than when it's like oh this spider-man is from the 1800s i like (laughs) it when it's spider-verse more than when it's spider no anal (laughs) that was beautiful nico thank you spider bottom um spider side um or spider switch i like spider switch i I could go for a spider switch (laughs) (laughs) 
it's I, I I I hear what you're saying, TK. I also I think about like Mecha, the Mecha Spider situation, like uh, the 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 iterations, different iterations on a theme rather than like you know ancient or you know future. Although they have their place too. Twenty ninety nine Spider is pretty awesome. Yeah, and you know they there's there's always going to be more Spider content, so I never super worry about uh, you know. I think everybody eventually gets their time. Um, I wanted to give props, uh, you know, there's a few more stories in this. I don't want to cover every single one, but I wanted to give props to Cheryl Lynn Eaton, the writer, uh, Julian Shaw, the artist and Andrew Dollhouse for recluse endangerment, where we are introduced to recluse. Um, I love a spider that is specifically species themed. So I appreciated this one a lot. It just reminds me too much of the actual recluse spider, which is a terrifying thing to look at if you see them. I completely agree. Um, But yeah, I mean, overall, I, I really enjoyed this, this run. I do. I think we talked about some of the concerns regarding what is happening with the publishing of a book like this. And I definitely share them. Uh, But I'm, I live in hope that these characters will get the stories they deserve and if nothing else become part of the anthologies that they deserve. Uh, you know, and to that, I just want to say the only other thing that I felt maybe uh, this book pointed out to me was if spider is into like, you know, the into the spider verse pride removes a bunch of published books called voices. Then this week had like, nine second printings yeah and one book called voices that is meant to service the needs of all minorities we can do better than that i think i think we sure can so you know a lot of other stuff was released this week we had uh bloodline daughter of blade which is on issue number three we had the start of cold war with uh the dovetailing of both captain america books we got Carnage number 12. We had Fantastic Four number six. Uh, Moon Knight 22. Just a side note, Fantastic Four number six was my jump off point. <laughs> I I agree. Um, you know, the, I did have that scheduled for us to talk about, but we are running a little long. And I, you know, I actually had it slotted in. And then we got this news about Spy- uh, Nightcrawler Spider. And I was like, let's go to Spider-Verse because ultimately I'm not really passionate um, I think it's beautifully drawn. I think Johnny Storm looks really sexy with a mustache. I just don't know what we're doing with the first family, man. I don't... Well, because they're never the first family. It's two right. of them at a time. It's two right. of them. One of them. Three of them. One of them. Two of them. One of them. If... Well, it's the only interesting Fantastic Four story is to take one of the four out. But if you really need to tell a story called Fantastic Order of Operations, then I ask that you put in interesting things like Herbie Squared or Baxter Building to the negative one half. Not to mention the plot that they're dealing with right now is just so... It's an algae bloom. They're trying to fight an algae bloom. And you're well, no, telling they're twiddling me they their thumbs. algae bloom? They're twiddling their thumbs while they wait for their kids to get home. And it's on the one hand, like, it's kind of a funny setup, but I would have actually rather leaned a lot harder into the humor than tried to give them Monster of the Week missions uh, that, you know, sometimes spill over. I, I agree. I unfortunately think it's my jumping off point, um, but it's another one. I live in hope that somebody figures it out. 
Silver Surfer Ghostlight is also at number three. And for Bloodline and Silver Surfer, I think I just want to wait until we have the full story. That is kind of the problem with these five issue minis is, you know, when we're when we're triaging what to cover, because there's just so much and we have so much to say, it doesn't seem to do them justice to pick the random middle stuff that really sometimes comes together completely um, by the end, or it, it, you know, it turns out by the end it really fails and it feels unfair to talk about it without having that whole perspective. I agree with that, especially with regards to bloodline, which I've been keeping up with because it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty standard origin story in some ways, but you know, because it's dealing with blade, because it's dealing with a young woman of color coming into her power, um, I think that there's a lot of nuance and perspective that's being offered by the writing and the, the writer and artist um, that make this a different thing. But I think that that's really, that's not really going to crystallize until the story has completed, until we see like what, where we're leaving this character by the end. I the same. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, was gonna say, I think that both X-23 that and was, uh, yeah, I was just about to say that, so perfect. Bloodline suffer from what Red and Gold Goblin both suffer from which are these are excellent books that play terribly because there's nothing supporting them. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. They they have nothing working with them to make them feel more legitimate. I think that I think Bloodline is I, I'm like I'm forced to give it C's. Like it's not a great issue. But what it's creating, it's worth your money. And if you don't think that buying this is going to be an investment, you're crazy because yeah, it's, this is a character. It's and an I think it'll a be a plus character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, her potential is a plus plus. And having read the five, I think you'll be very happy telling you at three, let's get into it is the really tough thing. And that is the big question mark around doing all these four issue, five issue, six issues. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, with, with limited time and a lot to say, that's why those didn't get covered. Of course, the, one of the big ones this week was Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants. Uh, we are going to do a full go over of Sins of Sinister. This one especially kind of actually falls into a similar category where beautiful book, but I think discussing it on its own is really tough and there is not. It, they're not a ton. It's like looking at a, you know, it's beautiful, but uh, I think it needs context and we're almost done. So uh, it's the opposite of, of 10 of swords, 10 of swords. I felt like every issue was trying to do nothing. Yeah. So that the whole story could do something. And instead here, every issue is doing so much. I don't know what the hell the sense of sinister is about. Yeah. I'm not even sure that it's about sinister anymore. Yeah. It's... And I, it feels like a lot of it is about each of the three authors' incredible skills being on display in this world that I can't get a footing in because I'm not supposed to, which is cool. But uh, it does make it difficult to discuss individual issues. Uh, and I think it makes it difficult to discuss the three that are, you know, it's, Nightcrawlers as a three is tough to discuss too. It's all uh, 11 or nothing. So <laughs> with that all said, uh, those were the books to talk about this week. Uh, before we wrap up, Jake, where can everybody find you? Oh, bopping my mic. Um, you can find me on the internet. Um, you can find me on the internet on Twitter uh, at Omega Sentinel. It's right down there, actually. And then you can also find me on Instagram at The Heart Farmer. Those are the places that you can find me. And um, I'm Jake. Bye. <laughs>
And Nico. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I just want to thank you all for joining us. I had so much fun talking about this week's books with you. I'm excited to keep doing it. And, uh, you know, I just, I had a blast. Me too. Same. So until next time, thank you everybody for joining us and we will see you. I just want to pop in too real yeah. quick. And I want to make sure that, uh, we are talking about what we got coming up. For thank the rest you so of the much. I, yes. I, I should not have yep. said, we'll see you so fast. We have some awesome stuff Absolutely. coming up. Uh, we're it's a big night tonight. It's the Gay Olympics. Yes, we are. We'll all be watching the season finale of Drag Race and waiting to see who's crowned. And then tomorrow morning, uh, tomorrow afternoon, we'll have a fantastic roundup of that. And then, of course, mm-hmm. on Sunday, we're going to be catching up with the MCU. Yeah, it's been a while since we uh, caught up in terms of our content. It was a huge staple of husbands talking more or less, and. Uh, there's certainly a lot to catch up on, so we're pretty excited to talk about uh, what a cluster beef it has been since the last time we discussed it. We were so excited for Phase 4 and everything they announced at SDCC 2019, and now here we are. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about that. We're going to talk uh, about uh, what's in store, what we're excited about, and what we're terrified of. So that'll be fun. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. All right, so until next time, we'll see you. Bye, everybody. Bye.